Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As Medicare continues to serve a growing number of beneficiaries, those who exploit this federal health care program can put beneficiaries' health and welfare at risk. Additionally, Fraud, abuse, and billing errors can cost the Medicare program and taxpayers billions of dollars every year. My guest today is Sean Smith, director of the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol. He will talk about the differences between Medicare fraud, abuse, and errors and give examples of each of these activities. He'll also tell us about the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol, its mission, and what the organization is doing to help beneficiaries handle complaints related to these practices. So welcome, Sean, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Okay. Well, Sean, we, of course, want to find out more about all these activities that we're talking about, but maybe we can just spend a couple minutes just getting an overview of Medicare, just some basic information. What is Medicare and who qualifies for the program? Great. No problem. So Medicare, of course, is uh, an insurance program sponsored by the U.S. government for individuals who are 65 years of age or older, and also for individuals who may be younger than 65, but because of some type of disability or medical condition, require assistance in getting medical services. And explain the four parts of the Medicare program, just so we understand exactly what, what they are. Sure. So the the four basic parts to Medicare, they're each labeled with a a letter, Part A, Part B, Part C, and Part D. Part A provides inpatient and hospital coverage. Part B provides outpatient medical coverage. Part C allows you to get your medical insurance through another Medicare provider, such as an, an independent insurance company. It's called a Medicare Advantage plan. And then Part D provides prescription drug coverage. And I, I wanted to just go back for a second in terms of qualifying for the program. Did you say that there is um, for people with disabilities that Medicare also covers that? Sure. Some individuals that have disabilities that are not uh, 65 do also have opportunity to gain some Medicare benefits. Okay. So let's get into the area that you focus on. And one of the three that I mentioned in my introduction Explain to us what is Medicare fraud? Sure. So Medicare fraud occurs when someone knowingly deceives Medicare in order to receive a payment, especially when they should not receive a payment 
or they may deceive Medicare into giving them a higher payment than they should for a service they might provide to a beneficiary. And the key around what makes fraud fraud is that it's an intentional deception. And have you seen that uh, Medicare fraud has increased during the pandemic? Uh, some different examples say then occurred um, maybe before the pandemic started. Give, give us some examples. Talk about what you're seeing now, especially um, in connection with the pandemic. Absolutely. So m- Medicare fraud has, has grown enormously expanded enormously since the pandemic has started. And most of the fraud has taken place from scammers in the in, in various parts of the country. And most of it is done by phone. Um, many seniors are in their homes and they receive all of these phone calls throughout the day from different scammers that are trying to trick them out of their medical information, such as their Medicare number or credit card or banking information in exchange for services that they want the beneficiary to believe that Medicare is going to pay for. An example of this, especially during the COVID age, it started with uh, PPE, what we call personal protective equipment, such as masks or maybe certain disinfectants or any type of covering for things like windows. Someone would call a beneficiary and say, we can provide you some things that help keep you safe from the coronavirus, such as a mask or such as specifically an N95 mask, if you give us your Medicare number, we can charge Medicare for it and we can send it to your house. Because these are scammers, they just want the Medicare number and they can charge a number of things to Medicare and receive payments from Medicare and the beneficiary either get something that's substandard or not get anything at all. But they provided that number and so scammers will use that number. It started with, of course, PPE, then it moved into uh, COVID testing and they various scams around testing that are very similar. They say they could sign people up for a test and they really can't sign anyone up for a test and they give the Medicare number or they might go to a testing site and give someone the Medicare number and scammers will use that number to bill Medicare for a number of things. And then, of course, now that we're into vaccines, those scams have moved into vaccines as well, where people will say, I can get you on the list to get the vaccine. Give me your Medicare number. We'll get you signed up. And people provide that information. As part of this also, obviously, um, and I'm assuming that this is still going on, about contact uh, tracing so people can find out, you know, who might be exposed. Is this another area within the the so-called pandemic issues that people could get um, tricked? That is that exactly one of those areas. Someone can call pretending. We've had people call pretending to be contact tracers. And of course, contact tracers don't need any type of personal information from you other than your name and maybe your address or phone number. But they'll ask saying that they're a contact tracer and they do need your Medicare number for some type of service that they're going to provide you. And of course, that would be a scam as well. So what I'm hearing, Sean, is, is that the, the major um, goal for people who are scammers is they really want the the Medicare number. That's that's really what they're trying to get. Or I, I'm just kind of wondering, again, in terms of this whole area, might they also trying to be getting other information, uh, financial information, or is the Medicare number really the, the primary um, desire or goal? Great question. So for most of the scammers, they're, they're, they're 
most of these scams are pretty elaborate, but they're all also very centered around a, a specific thing. And so if they're a Medicare scammer and they can get that Medicare number, they're going to be pretty satisfied because there's a lot they can do with that number. They can charge things onto your Medicare account uh, for various different items. It could be a service that they can pretend to charge for. It could be medical equipment such as a brace or a wheelchair or a walker they can charge to your account. So they can get pretty far with the Medicare number. There are times where they may try to get money out of you as well as maybe your banking information. But if they don't have some type of backup system developed or program developed to, to work with a bank account, uh, the way they would a Medicare number, then those things aren't quite as important to them. So they build their systems around the type of information they're looking to get. And you were saying earlier that that primarily they try to reach Medicare beneficiaries by phone. Mm -hmm. How can beneficiaries then recognize that this is Medicare fraud? What what would tip them off, assuming that they answered the phone and that's uh, something that a lot of older adults don't do. But assuming that they did, what might the scammer be saying that could um, alert the beneficiary who answers the phone? Sure. So many scammers, of course, they'll pretend to be a, right away someone that they trust. So they'll pretend to be Medicare or possibly the Social Security Administration or maybe even um, maybe even the IRS. And they'll call these individuals and provide the story that sounds compelling, work them through by trying to elicit some emotional response out of them, and then start asking for things like their Medicare numbers or their Social Security numbers. And so if they're asking for the, first of all, Medicare, the IRS, or the Social Security Administration is not going to call your house. If they're going to contact you, they're going to contact you first by mail. And then they're going to give you instructions if they need you to call them. They'll call you possibly if you call and request a call back. But initially, they're not going to initiate with a with a with a call to your home. So if they call and they say they're from one of those places, you know it's a scam. If they call and they ask for sensitive information, you also know it's a scam. Medicare is not going to ask you for your Medicare number because they already have that. Uh, Social Security Administration is not going to ask for that information. So anytime someone's asking you for sensitive information or money by phone, pretending to be one of these organizations, you can almost guarantee that it's a scam. And it's best just to hang up. It's definitely best just to hang up the phone. And we tell individuals also, if you don't recognize the number that comes up on your caller ID, then ignore it. Uh, a lot of times, again, because the stories can be so compelling and because uh, scammers can be so convincing, they can get you on the phone and, and roll you into their story, elicit some emotions and, and really trap you. And so we say, if you don't recognize the number, then ignore the call. And then also, if, they're, if it's really important, they'll leave a message and, and you can respond to that message if necessary. Okay, well, let's let's turn to some other aspects. Uh, let's now talk about health provider practices. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about the what are some health provider practices that are examples of Medicare fraud? Sure. So sometimes... There are providers that are caught up in fraud schemes or are participating in part of fraud schemes. And again, they tend to be sometimes a little bit more elaborate. So, for example, uh, there are kickback schemes where a Medicare or Medicare provider, such as a doctor or a physician's office, may be recruiting 
patients to come in for certain procedures that they know they can bill Medicare for. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years back, there was a dentist who was had a recruiter that he was paying $50 a person to recruit to come to his practice. When the individual came to their practice, they offered them payment for the service. So a patient would come in and they would get $25 just for coming in and they were coming in for a denture fitting. They would get their $25. The dentist would then bill for the service of getting the dentures fitting, but also then order the dentures. And so when this particular physician was discovered, uh, it turns out that he had a closet full of dentures that he had ordered and Medicare had paid for to the tune of over $6 million. He was paying $50 to each person that was recruited, plus another $25 to the person that came in. But any time a physician wants to offer you money to come in for service or someone recruits you to come in for a service, then you can almost guarantee that it's a scam. So you gave kind of... Uh an answer to my next question, but I didn't know if you wanted to elaborate it. I was wondering if there's any other kind of information in addition to what you just said that a health provider might give to beneficiaries that again would make uh, uh, the individual uh, a little leery about what the intent was. Any other uh, thoughts on that, Sean? Sure. Sometimes Anytime a physician wants to uh, bill for a service that 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 you can look at and tell that's probably medically not necessary, um, if you know it and they know that is medically not necessary, uh, then certainly that's going to be something that's that you would want to be cautious about or suspicious of. Um, most of the scams that happen with physicians and providers or physicians or providers and beneficiaries, oftentimes a beneficiary doesn't know that it's happening. And so because of the elaborate back end of the, what's going on, then the provider is is not caught up or at least in tune to the scam until maybe they get billed for it on their Medicare notice. But in a, in a everyday transaction, it's very rare that the participant or the beneficiary would know that the provider is doing something that would be illegal. Sometimes you do read in various um, publications and that, that maybe there's too much or too many, say, diagnostic tests that health providers um, order that may, may not be necessary. Has that been um, part of your experience uh, in, in your work that it's, it's a little uncertain as to whether there's too many diagnostic tests? What would you tell us? So that doesn't come up quite as often as some of the other scams, because most of the time those things have to be documented by the physician, and that has to go in sometimes with some of the payment requests that they make from Medicare. Most of the scams that we see, uh, and the ones that are most common, are going to be from providers that would not be necessarily a physician, but more so like a durable medical equipment provider. So someone is going to provide you braces or wheelchair equipment or equipment that you reuse. Those are scams that we see most often from providers and even maybe some of the testing, uh, the labs that may happen. So some of these ancillary people, not as much as we see with the physicians. However, when physicians are involved in some of those scam opportunities, they're going to be a little bit more elaborate so that they can somewhat distance themselves and they need other participants to be a, a major part of it. Most times with physicians' offices, it's going to be more errors or abuse. Okay. Well, 
that's a good segue into my next question. So let's talk about Medicare errors. Uh, what are what are examples of those? Are those as serious as, say, what we've just been talking about in terms of fraud? Or how does that happen? Yeah, Medicare errors are not quite as difficult or as as um, as elaborate as the abuse, and certainly not as not as egregious. So errors could be something as simple as a physician's office might bill you twice for the same service. And that's something that can be really easily straightened out or corrected. It's not something that's done intentionally. Um, it could be something as simple as, and this is the actual case where I had a beneficiary who went to Florida. They're from Virginia. They went to Florida while they were in Florida. They felt like they needed a COVID test. They had a Medicare Advantage plan. And I'll and when they got to the physician's office to get the test, the physician said that they would bill their plan. And they gave them a statement saying that it was paid for. When they got back to home, they received a bill from the physician saying the insurance company wouldn't pay for it, so it's out of state. But they noticed that the statement they received in Florida and the bill they received had two different account numbers. And so they called the senior Medicare patrol and we helped them figure out what the issue was. Of course, they didn't want to pay on one account and still get billed for another account. And it was a simple error that they made in the, in the physician's office. And so we got that straightened out for them. But that's an example of an error. Do you see that quite often? Certainly, certainly. And many folks are able to resolve those things for themselves. So anytime they, they might see that they get the same bill twice and they've already paid the bill, or it could be you know, things even more simple than that, that they've got the wrong name on the top of the bill or they there's a service on there that they didn't receive. So it's it's very easy. It's very simple. Okay. Well, the third area that we want to hear more about is Medicare abuse. What what is define that and give us some examples. Sure. So Medicare abuse would be something that's more systematic in a physician's office, meaning that they've adopted a practice that's not intentionally designed to get them a higher payment, but it's not necessarily done the correct way in terms of what Medicare would normally have it to be done. An example of that that we're working on is a case where an individual, uh, he's a beneficiary that has a diagnosis that requires annual lab reports. So he has annual blood testing in the first part of the year and then annual testing in the second part of the year. In that set of labs, there's four or five different tests that might take place. And all of those are typically covered by Medicare. So for the last three or four years, all of those have been covered by Medicare. When we got to 2020, the lab started coding some of the tests differently, which chart, which caused him to get charged for those tests. And so because we know what tests they are, we know what the history was, we realized that the lab is now just doing something differently and not probably on this particular patient, but also probably on a whole string of patients. And so now all of these patients are getting charged for something that they probably shouldn't get charged for, not necessarily because the lab has intentionally seeking to get additional monies, but because they've changed something in the, in the way that they've practiced or the way they've taught their staff. And so in working with that lab, we realized what the problem was, and they were able to reverse those changes and straighten out the problem. So, And that would be considered abuse. It's some systematic way that the, lab, that the uh, provider is doing something that in, unintentionally uh, creates a problem for Medicare or Medicare beneficiary. And is that more the case, Sean, that the abuse is not uh, purposeful, that sometimes it's just a matter of, as you said, the coding or something like that? Or are there also examples of there is 
um, a, a real intent for abuse. Sure. So most of the times when we have those conversations that we see situations like this, it turns out to be that there's a training issue or there's a training problem with a new person or a new staff member, and they're able to turn those things around. If we get to the point where we feel like they're not willing to make those changes, especially when it's something as it seems as clear cut as the coding is different, then we can push that up to say that it may be on the fraudulent side, that it may be something intentionally that they're doing. But in, in many cases that we look at, it's, it's something very simple that they've just done something differently than they've always done it in the past, or they've made it part of their normal practice amongst their staff that becomes that makes it a, makes it abuse. Okay. Well, explain to us why are Medicare fraud, abuse, and errors illegal? Sure. So of course, abuse and errors are not going to be illegal where fraud definitely would be. And uh, the, the kicker that makes it different is the intentionality. So when someone is intentionally trying to deceive Medicare, the government or beneficiary, then that's what makes it illegal. And it's illegal, of course, because they're trying to get additional monies out of the government that they don't deserve. And that causes a problem, of course, for the government, but it also causes a problem for each one of us who pays taxes into that system. And then, of course, Medicare beneficiaries who lose out when that money isn't there to provide their services or a service that they may have been entitled to someone else has already usurped. And so, again, illegal because of the intentionality. You uh, gave an example a little earlier of the, the folks that went to Florida and then came back. Um, I, I guess there's kind of a two-part question. Are older adults usually pretty savvy about if they're beginning to uh, recognize that there might be some example of fraud, abuse, or errors being conducted by their health provider? And so that's kind of the first part. Does that happen often? And then if they do recognize it, what what should they do? Yeah. So older adults are sp- specifically susceptible uh, when it comes to Eric, Medicare errors, fraud, and abuse, uh, and for a number of reasons. And it depends on the older adult. Many older adults are are very savvy, as you say, and some because of their declining health, uh, health issues, some because the increasing use and dependency upon technology, and they're not as savvy with that type of equipment, that it, they, it makes them a little bit more susceptible. Isolation makes individuals more susceptible, or even grief. Any type of an emotional, uh, any type of emotional issue they might be dealing with also decreases their their ability to identify some of the problems that might come arise out of Medicare fraud or abuse. And so, when they when they feel like they might be defrauded. They can report it to the senior Medicare patrol or depending on where the, in what area they feel they might be defrauded, they can call their medical provider or they might call their insurance provider to start to talk about what might be going on and, and try to get some clarity about the situation to determine if it's an error or if it's fraud or if it's actual abuse. And we're going to be talking a lot in the second half of the program about the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol. But I, in connection with what you just said, Sean, I was wondering, do you find that there is an attitude sometimes maybe that, well, you know, Medicare is paying for it. I'm not going to worry. Maybe even this looks, um, I'm not really sure whether there might be an example of fraud or abuse or errors, but, uh, you know, somebody else can worry about that. Or are they? Are the you finding that that 
and not only older adults, but their families and this kind of that they're very conscientious and really want to do the right thing. What what's been your experience? I think there's a mixture of both. I think there's a mixture of both. And I'll give you an example of where we might see it often. We if we go back to some of the phone calls that individuals get around receiving durable medical equipment or things like back braces or knee braces or ankle braces, we have a number of companies that are out there calling beneficiaries saying that I can, if you have an, an ache or a pain and they start questioning you, how are your knees? How's your back? How's your elbow? We have a brace that you can acquire for free because Medicare is going to pay for it. Uh, give us your information. We'll send it out to you. We'll charge Medicare. You'll be good to go. Well, what happens is that company will say, you may say to that company, I need a knee brace because my knee bothers me. Well, in turn, that company will send you, and we've seen this happen many times, they'll send you a knee brace, but then they'll also send you a back brace, and they'll also send you an elbow brace, and then they'll also send you a wrist brace. And so now you have four braces, only one that you need. Medicare pays that company for all of those braces. The individuals receive four braces. They say, well, my knee brace is here. That's what I have. So no big deal. Well, the big deal is this company just got paid for braces that you didn't need and that you probably shouldn't have anyway. And now that is also on your Medicare summary notice. So that individual. So if you did need that later on, you couldn't reorder that. But it's one of those situations where. I got it. I got what I needed. It's really not a big deal to me because I didn't have to pay for it. And I end up sitting around with three braces that are wasted. And so that that does happen. And we don't hear about those cases often because the, the beneficiary is satisfied. But we know that happens based on some of the cases that do get reported. But there are times where we do hear that they did receive four braces and they're concerned about it because they charge Medicare for it and they shouldn't have. And they believe it's a scam and they report those things to us. So we see both sides of that. Well, and we're going to hear more about that in the second half of the program, but we're going to take a short break right now. We are talking with Sean Smith, director of the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol, and you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We're talking with Sean Smith, Director of the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol. And we really got some great information in the first half of the show about fraud and abuse and errors. And now, Sean, we want to turn to your organization, the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol. Explain, tell us, tell us who you are and, and what your mission is, how you're funded, how long it's been around. Give us more details. Sure. So the Senior Medicare Patrol is a program that's designed to help prevent fraud, and its mission is to assist Medicare beneficiaries, their family members, and caregivers to prevent, detect, and report Medicare errors, fraud, and abuse. And we do that through education, through outreach, and through counseling. 
It's a program that falls under the Department of Health and Human Services under their Administration for Community Living. And it's granted in the state of Virginia by, to the Virginia Association of Area Agencies on Aging. And given the fact that that's obviously it's a federal program, is there a senior Medicare patrol um, throughout in every state? And, and do they operate the same way as, say, the way you operate in Virginia? Yeah, there's a senior Medicare patrol in every state of the union, plus there are four U.S. territories that also have senior Medicare patrols. And generally, the mission of the program is the same, although who the grantee might be in each state may be a little bit different. In Virginia, like I said, it's the program is provided by a funding, a grant funded grant, excuse me, it's a grant funded program. And the Virginia Association for Area Agencies on Aging holds that grant. And we subcontract with 22 of the 25 local area agencies on aging to administer the program throughout the state. And let's start right away. Give us that website address. We want to, because some folks might be listening and want to tune in. And uh, while you're talking about the uh, the, the program, uh, they might want to be looking on the website. So give us that address. Yeah. So the Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol web, uh, web address is virginiasmp.com. So Virginia is spelled out V-I-R-G-I-N-I-A-S-M-P, which stands for Senior Medicare Patrol.com. And on our website, we have information about fraud. We have resources that individuals can utilize and pull down, such as fact sheets, as well as infographics to teach them about some of the different fraud schemes that that may encounter throughout the community. And is there a phone number that people can actually call? Yeah, the, each Medicare, each senior Medicare patrol around the country hosts a 1-800 fraud hotline, and it's, it's separate or individual for each state. So the Virginia hotline number is 1-800-938-8885. And you would call that number if you suspect that there's an error or fraud or abuse happening on your Medicare or any healthcare account. And what we try to do with seniors is we try to help them figure out, of course, whether it's an error, fraud, or abuse, but also try to almost triage their particular situation to get them connected to the right agency so they don't have to make 15 phone calls to find the right person. We have a network of information and network of individuals that can really help them research what might be going on with their particular case and then direct them to the right resource and then also assist them with whatever that resource might be if necessary. And, and thank you again, Sean, for leading right into to my question. So if and I just kind of want to walk through this again. So if I suspected that um, I was a victim or there was some uh, example of fraud, abuse or error, it, and I called that 800 number in Virginia, is first of all, how is it only open Monday through Friday? And, and is there a live person or do I leave a message or how does that work? Explain the process. Sure. So if you call that number, most times you'll get a live person that'll answer the phone. If not, you can leave a message and you'll receive a call back typically within 24 hours. And once you get on the phone, that individual will listen to what might be going on with your case. They're going to ask you what you've encountered or what makes you think that you're having a situation. And then we'll work with you for that. So and I'll give you a very simple example of a call that we that we receive or similar something like a call that we receive often. Uh, we have a young lady that has called and because she got a bill for 
the oxygen that she uses and she didn't understand the bill. She said, typically she doesn't get billed for this particular service. And so she shared the bill with us. She sent, she emailed it to, I'm sorry, she didn't email it to us. She actually sent it to us by physical mail. And once we received it, uh, we worked with her to call the company and she, she asked that we be on the line with her so that she could find and get an understanding of it. And so we called with her and we talked to the agency and the agency explained that it really wasn't a bill. It was actually uh, just a statement and that typically she doesn't get billed. They were just sending her a statement showing what Medicare had paid. So the individual felt like she'd gotten a bill, but it really wasn't. It was just a statement. And so we were able to resolve that with her and she felt fine. A few weeks later, she called back again because she actually did get billed for a smaller amount and didn't understand why she was getting billed. So we called back to, again together and she was able to ask questions. It made sense to her and we helped to resolve her issue. And when people do call you, um, what would you like to tell these people to have in place before the, you start talking? Because sometimes you're going to be asking a lot of questions and then they'll say, oh, gee, I need to get that or I need to get that. So is there kind of a little bit of a, a, a cheat sheet that would be you could advise people to have available to help make your handling um, the situation a little easier? Typically, no, because each situation is going to be a little bit different and may require different things. So the basic information that we record for all calls are going to be your name, telephone number, where you live, um, and then telling us what the situation might be. For some cases, we may need you to send in some documents. We prefer people don't send it by email if it's sensitive information, because most email is not going to be encrypted. So we ask them to actually send it to us through actual mail or fax it to us if they can. Uh, but that's not necessary for every case. On cases where we feel like it might be actual fraud, we may ask that beneficiary for their Medicare number. And that gives us permission to call Medicare on their behalf or with them if we need to, but also becomes information that we'll need to send in to the Office of the Inspector General if we want them to investigate a, fraud, a fraudulent situation that we can't resolve with the beneficiary or on our own. And so other than that information, if it's if it's got to do with billing, then we're going to want to see that billing. If it's got to do with the Medicare summary notice, then we might ask them to send those in. If it has to do with other documentation, we may ask for a number of different things, but really nothing on the telephone that they would need that they wouldn't be able to recite to us or, or share with us from a Medicare card or or the document they might be looking at. And I, I would understand that if it was a serious case and that you recognized that um, maybe fraud was um, had occurred, then would you then follow up? You mentioned the inspector general. So I was just kind of wondering if there actually was a crime committed. Do, do mm -hmm. you then as, as uh, the director of the Virginia senior Medicare patrol uh, take the next steps? Uh, if the law enforcement has to be involved or what happens then? Yeah, so we would put we would initiate a case. So from the time an individual calls, we open up a case for them. And depending on which direction that case goes will depend on the steps that we would take. So, for example, the individual I just spoke of where she was getting a bill or felt like she was getting a bill and was really just a statement. We opened up a case for her and I put in all of the information that was necessary for her. I did not need her Medicare number. So I didn't have to go that route with her, but I, the other information I did need. So we, she sent that in, we made the phone call to the appropriate 
provider. We got the situation straightened out and we closed her case. Other cases that we deal with that may be more serious, and if I can think of an example. So for example, we had an individual who was getting billed for, for service. I'm sorry, they were getting braces that they did not order. So a, a durable medical equipment company called and inadvertently or not knowing that it was a fraud, the individual gave the, the company her Medicare number. They sent this individual some medical braces. When, they, when she got the box, she gave us the name of the company. She gave us the email address or the, the mailing address and all the information that she had previously had from the company. She opened the box and pulled out a statement. So she sent that information to us. We added that to her case. And then we sent that case to the Office of the Inspector General, which is the office that does the fraud investigation on behalf of Medicare that's located in the Department of Health and Human Services. From there, that office will then contact us to let us know they got the case. And then as that case proceeds, they will they will periodically update me on what where that case is and what's going to happen or what will happen. And then I can update the beneficiary. Some of those cases take months, years to resolve. And so it may be some time that lapses between when we actually submit the case and then when it actually gets resolved. And so some of those updates don't come as quite as frequently. In other cases, we might submit information directly to Medicare, depending on whether it's a Medicare Part A or B situation or a Medicare Part C or D situation. In those cases, whenever they're submitted, I get notification that it's been submitted, they've received it, and they're looking into it. And then I will get a call back and they'll tell me how it's been resolved. And again, depending on the situation, it may be a few months or a few weeks, it may be a year, depending on how long it takes. I'll give you a quick example. There was an individual who wrote in or called in and said that he had he just signed up with the new Medicare Advantage plan and he was requesting a copy of his booklet that talks about his benefits, but also a copy of the medical formulary. So when he called me, he told me what he needed. Um, he didn't have to send any information in. I just collected his basic information, the company he was dealing with. Uh, I got the I got the phone number from the company off of the online system and called them myself. I didn't get a reply from them. So I called Medicare and sent his case over to Medicare and let them know what was going on. Two days later, the company, the insurance company called me and asked me what was happening. I shared with them that this beneficiary didn't get their information. And then she said, I'm going to make sure it gets sent out. I'll call you with confirmation. A day later, she called me back and said, I've confirmed that those documents have been sent to the individual and we're waiting now to see if he will actually receive those documents in hand within the next week. All right. The other question I wanted to raise in so far as people contacting you, what about caregivers and family members of beneficiaries? Uh, it's conceivable that uh, either one of these two categories may notice that something's amiss. Are, are they, do you accept uh, complaints, uh, reports of complaints from them? How do you know that they're who they are? And how, how does that work when they, you know, uh, say that there's a, a complaint about, you know, a fraud, abuse, or errors? Yeah, that's great. We, we actually do that. That's one of the main, those are two of the main areas of individuals that our targets are focused in terms of educating education and outreach. But we often have 
uh, family members and caregivers give us a call on behalf of the beneficiary for a number of reasons. Sometimes the beneficiary is not in a state where they can make the phone call on their own behalf, or they may be children that say, hey, mom, let me help you with that, or dad, let me help you with that. We've had situations where we've had other types of caregivers or service providers, volunteer service providers call on behalf of individuals. And a quick example of that would be there's an individual who's a beneficiary of Medicare who has a volunteer uh, financial coach. And the, the beneficiary got caught up in a scheme with a long term, not a long term care provider, but a um, I'm going to spit it out in a second. I'm sorry. Uh, they were trying to get some documents for an advanced directive and the individual ended up paying for three documents when he really only wanted one and they didn't figure out how he got billed for these because Medicare does pay for an advanced directive. And so his his financial coach gave me a call on behalf of the beneficiary. And so we're working with both of them now to get the issue resolved with the company that he had worked with. And so we always welcome when a beneficiary has someone like a family member or caregiver that wants to assist them in the process. And we work with them directly if requested or work with all three individuals if necessary uh, to help get the situation turned around. Given how many examples you've given and, and uh, what, what can happen in terms of fraud, abuse and errors, can you tell us, can, can some of these be prevented or um, and I know we're going to kind of go into outreach and education, but what do you tell people in, as to how uh, these three different major areas could be prevented? Sure. So Medicare beneficiaries, whether they are part of a Medicare Advantage plan or, or part of regular Medicare, always get either an explanation of benefits, which we call an EOB, or Medicare summary notice, which we call an MSN. And those documents are basically like statements from your bank or from your credit card company. It tells you everything that's going on with your services as related to either of those entities, whether it's your insurance company or Medicare. So on that Medicare summary notice, if you've gone to the doctor this month, then it'll show you who the doctor is, the location that you went to, the services that you received, and if you picked up prescriptions from a pharmacy and Medicare is paid for it. It'll tell you who the pharmacist or which pharmacy it was, where the pharmacy is located and what prescriptions were picked up. And so it's really like a statement. And anytime you look at those statements, it tells you exactly what should have happened or should be exactly what happened with your medical services. Anytime something's wrong on that particular statement, then you should be suspicious and you should really try to work to figure out what happened and why it's wrong. And you should do that as often as you get those statements, the same way that you would with a bank statement. That's one of the clearest and easiest ways for a Medicare beneficiary to figure out if there's fraudulent activity happening with their Medicare account. The reason it's so important to look at that so often is because the longer you wait, the more a scammer can get away with, just like with your bank card or your credit card. Uh, we have an example where an individual had received uh, someone had been using her Medicare number to get prescription drugs for almost six months. And she didn't really feel the impact until the sixth month when she went to pick up her prescriptions, where it usually cost her maybe like $48 a month. She now had to pay $200. And when she questioned the physician about it or the pharmacist about it, the pharmacist said that she'd fallen into a coverage gap. And the 
beneficiary knew that she should not have fallen into a coverage gap because she chose an insurance that should have covered all of her medical benefits or her prescription benefits for the year. When she went to look back at the at the six previous MSNs, which she had not looked at before, she saw initially from February through June that someone had been picking up prescriptions using her card in Louisiana. And it had the pharmacy, the pharmacist's name, the doctors that had prescribed it, but they were using her number to do this. Had she caught that in February and looked at the first one, she could have prevented the situations that she ended up in in June. The problem for her now is that she will continue to pay that extra additional fee until they get the entire investigation figured out. So that could be, again, months or years until she gets a, or until she gets a new plan. But now she's suffering because of what a scammer had done and because she hadn't looked at her Medicare summary notices along the way. And if she had looked right away, would she, would the best first step been to contact your organization or go back and talk to her provider? What would be that first step that, uh, that you would advise? Great question. So the first step always that we always say is to call Medicare, and that's using the 1-800-MEDICARE hotline. So if you call 1-800-MEDICARE, then that's the first step. And then most of the time, Medicare will then tell you to call the Senior Medicare Patrol. And then we can start the casework to look into the situation as well. So Medicare is only going to only going to tackle the Medicare piece. And if there are other pieces associated with it, and those other pieces could be things like if there's a pharmacist involved or if there's uh, some place that really doesn't charge Medicare but still could be fraudulent, then we would assist with those areas as well. And so uh, Medicare will take care of making sure that your number is secure and they'll look for strange things on your account. But then the senior Medicare patrol will then work with you to collect that documentation and begin that casework to submit that case to other entities that may be able to help. Sean, talk a little bit more. You had mentioned a little bit earlier when, uh, when you gave us a definition of what an SMP is. You mentioned about outreach and education activities. Uh, explain a little bit more about what these activities are. Are you still doing the same thing right now with COVID? And, and, and also then, how can groups learn more about what you do? Great, great. So unfortunately, we, we don't do as much as we used to before COVID. So as I shared before, we partner with 22 of the 25 area agencies on aging around the state. Each of those area agencies on aging have senior Medicare patrol coordinators and other representatives, some are paid and some are volunteer. And typically in a non-COVID world, we would go out to many different events and set up tables to educate the public about the SMP, Medicare fraud, and how to report it. We would go to things like the state fair or any type of community event or outreach event where we could set up a table and be somewhat of a vendor or a sponsor. We would go to conferences and we would share that information at various conferences, whether it's a, a conference for seniors, a conference for medical providers, or anywhere we felt like we would run into Medicare beneficiaries, their family members or caregivers. We would also attend church meetings. Plenty of people would call us and say, hey, can you come talk to my senior group or to this particular group in my church or a civic group, or it could be Rotary or, or what have you. But we would always look for those different opportunities throughout the state to participate in. Now that we are not 
uh, able to go out into the public like we used to, we sponsor different web events. So the Senior Medicare Patrol out of its main office here in Richmond, we do a monthly webinar, which you can sign up for on our website. Again, that website is virginiasmp.com. That's V-I-R-G-I-N-I-A-S-M-P.com. And on that website, you'll see where you can sign up for our monthly webinar where we'll pick a, a fraud topic and we'll cover that topic. So. Uh, two months ago, we talked about COVID scams and all of the schemes that that people are falling into around the coronavirus. Last month, we talked about uh, the thought process behind uh, what scammers are thinking and how they get information out of you. As I shared before, part of our mission is to empower seniors. And so while we can teach you about every different scam that happens, we want to teach you more broadly about how to think about scammers and how scammers work so that regardless of how they might change their scams for different parts of, of how they want to get you, if you understand a broader view about how that scam happens, then you can probably spot a scam even though you've not heard of that particular scam in the past. And so we want to give that type of information. Coming up, we're going to be talking about phishing scams for next month, so for the March webinar. We'll talk about phishing scams where people will get various emails from people who are trying to fish to get their information. And we'll look at live emails and show you how to tell whether or not it's a fraudulent email or a legitimate email and then what to do about it. But that webinar happens the third Wednesday of each month from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. And again, you can sign up on our website. It's conducted on a Zoom webinar platform. And so you can do that on your phone, your, your tablet or your computer. We're getting close to the end, but I wanted to find out a few more things yet about uh, SMP. You mentioned about resources. What kind of resources are offered and, and how can listeners access them? Absolutely. So as I shared on our website, we do have some infographics and some fact sheets that you can download. And we, we create those quite often, things around coronavirus vaccine, things you should know and how to identify a scam, things like imposter scams, what the IRS will and won't do on a phone call to you. Um, but then also resources that we have that we can mail out to your things like um, we have what we call a medical health journal. And so this journal helps you to, to track your medical appointments and the services that you receive as part of those appointments so that when you get your Medicare summary notice, you can compare and make sure that the services that you actually received uh, match the services that you received on your Medicare summary notice. And so that way you can compare and make sure that there's no fraud happening. So we have those, we have refrigerator magnets that show you the SMP phone number in case you feel like you've found a situation where you're suspecting fraud. Um, there's also, we do pens, we do a number of other um, brochures and pamphlets that help you learn about fraud that you can share with your friends and family as well. And you also mentioned about the need for volunteers. Uh, is that still uh, something that uh, you would like people to consider and Tell us a little bit more about what would be the requirements. Is there a time commitment? What would you tell us? Sure, absolutely. So we always look for volunteers and it's often we get a lot of volunteers that are seniors. And so these individuals will help us share information throughout the community. There really is no requirement. We, we do have to do uh, a background check on the individual. And uh, certainly there's a little bit of paperwork that goes in the beginning, but they'll go through a, a four hour training, which we break up over it's an hour a week for four weeks and we do that via zoom and then they're able to help share that information at various events so for example 
our main team, of course, is here in Richmond. But if there's an event in your local region, if you know that your community is putting on uh, I don't know, a shrimp festival or a craft festival, and you want to set up a table to help get the message out, we'll send you the materials that you need, and you can set up that table and share with people about the basics of Medicare, Medicare and healthcare fraud. Um, and so volunteers work with us that way. We have some local volunteers in some of the offices that come in and put packets together for other events. For example, we have a hospital that we work with in Richmond, and they were doing a drive-through fair. So we have bags and we put materials in about fraud and we had volunteers come in and make these materials or put these materials in the bags. And then we took those bags over to the hospital for the hospital to give out as part of their drive-through health fair. And so volunteers can help us in a number of different ways. And so we're always looking for those opportunities. Of course, the opportunities aren't as, uh, aren't as frequent because we're not out and about in the community, but we do see that growing, of course, as we move out of the COVID era. And again, if they wanted to volunteer, should they get in touch with you, uh, go on your website? Uh, how would they express their interest in being a volunteer? Yeah, so we have a volunteer page on our website uh, at virginiasmp.com. You can go on there and then on our contact page, you can send us a short email telling us a little bit about yourself and your interest to volunteer. And then we can get you connected in your community with the SMP coordinator that would help you get set up and ready to participate in some of the volunteer activities. All right, so one more time, Sean. How can Medicare beneficiaries and caregivers and their families learn about the Virginia uh, Senior Medicare Patrol? So they can visit us on our website, virginiasmp.com. Um, again, Virginia spelled out V-I-R-G-I-N-I-A-S-M-P.com. Or they can contact us. We have a web page, I'm sorry, uh, a YouTube page as well, where we post a number of videos about healthcare, Medicare fraud. And you can reach that from our website. Uh, we also have a monthly newsletter that we do. And again, you can connect that to that from our website as well. It's called the SMP Fraud Update. And again, go to our website, go to our news page, and that'll be an opportunity to subscribe to that particular publication is there. And then finally, we have a Facebook page where we put information out that's called Virginia SMP as well. And you can reach that. We post things weekly, uh, new information about fraud, and some of the recent activities that happen around fraud. And so reach us in all of those ways. But of course, if you feel like you've been a victim or you're suspicious about any activity on your accounts around healthcare or Medicare, you can always call our Medicare hotline. It's 1-800-938-8885. And you can do that to report or, or talk about uh, suspected cases of fraud or also leave information if you want to receive any of the healthcare resources that we might have. Okay. I want to thank Sean Smith with Virginia Senior Medicare Patrol for joining me today. Lots of really, really timely and important information. And also, I wanted to let you know that if you want to learn about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is www.agingmattersonline.com. And if you go to this site, you'll get information about all the Aging Matters radio and TV show that we've done in the past. And by the way, you will also find out about the fact that Aging Matters, all of these programs, the radio programs, are now on the podcast on Apple and Spotify. And if you want to continue to learn about Aging Matters, you can subscribe to the monthly newsletter. 
just go to the website, go to the bottom of the page and sign up, and then you'll get updates about all new radio shows and TV episodes every month. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you, as always, for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.